Urban Rivers is a Chicago-based nonprofit organization comprised of a passionate group of ecologists, entrepreneurs, and public servants with a collective background that spans world-renowned organizations, businesses, and institutions. Urban Rivers is spearheading efforts in the construction of the Wild Mile, a mile-long floating eco-park in the Chicago River. The student programming is the top priority. Wild Mile Chicago presents a unique opportunity to create community-accessible public open space. For all things Urban Rivers and Wild Mile, please visit our website at www.urbanriv.org. It's the Urban Rivers Podcast. In today's episode, we are chatting with Shed Aquarium's Austin Happel. Austin is a research biologist analyzing long-term data from the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District on fish communities and water quality in Chicago. Set to gauge how the fishes in Chicago's rivers are responding to actions taken to improve water quality. His research focuses on how we can better conserve, manage, and restore freshwater aquatic ecosystems to promote thriving and diverse fish communities. Our conversation with him is really insightful. We hope you enjoy. So if you see a bright LED or a glow stick, please don't pick it up. That's that's me. I'll come by within the hour and I can tell you what I'm doing. Welcome back to Urban Rivers Podcast. Today we have a good, good friend of ours. He is a freshwater researcher at the Shed Aquarium. Uh, he has been helping us do research in our canal at the beginnings of the Wild Mile for a year or two now. Uh, Dr. Austin Happel. Austin, if you could just give us a kind of brief overview of everything you're about, what kind of work you do, and uh, what's kind of led you to Urban Rivers and the Wild Mile. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Phil. I never thought I'd be a part of a podcast, so this will be something new for me. Um, kind of surprised. I know. Podcasts are everywhere now. Yeah, but... <laughs> I always think like, who wants to listen to me talk for an hour? That kind of gets <laughs> without visuals. Especially we don't have live fish to show people. I yeah, yeah. we strange. need some like gobies or killifish to <laughs> flash across the screen. Yeah. Um, I don't, I guess I'll start from the beginning. I, so I grew up in Indiana um, on a small pond. And I think that I kind of attribute that to my interest in fish and fisheries and ecosystems. Um, in my parents' backyard, I was always catching fish and trying to figure out what was where and why. Uh, why was it different in the spring than the fall? And that kind of led me to really enjoying keeping fish. And I worked for a pet store and that piqued my interest even more. And like, how do we keep fish alive? What do they like to eat? Um, who eats who? Uh, <laughs> what happens when they get sick? Um, and I went to school thinking I would continue that path and like get a business degree and open a pet store and then things all changed when I took a class that involved getting outside so I started playing around in streams but they called it coursework or a laboratory or something I was like well I get paid to go stomp around in the mud um, and that kind of became the new trajectory I went on where I started working on river ecology at Purdue University um, and helping out with some lab work there. 
graduated there, didn't know what to do, found a master's degree that was focused on food web ecology in Lake Michigan. Mm. And I was like, oh, when I was at the pet store, I was always interested in like, well, if I feed it this, does it get more colorful? If I feed it that, will it be less sick? Or <laughs> like who eats who and who can I keep together? So if I can just study that, that would be really interesting. So went to the University of Illinois for the master's degree, stayed in the same lab for a PhD, all focused on food web ecology in the Great Lakes. When I finished those degrees, I got a job at Colorado State University teaching for a year and a half. Um, that was a great experience because nothing forces you to learn things than having to teach it. So I got to spread my wings a little bit and learn about a lot of different topics related to fisheries work that I wasn't really exposed to previously. Um, and then I got to bring a lot of that knowledge here to SHED. So I started at SHED about a year and a half ago um, and was tasked with starting a program focused on urban freshwater systems. So how do freshwater systems respond to humans living nearby and how can humans do management actions or be better stewards for those ecosystems. So um, what can we do to help uh, our local kind of waterways and maybe ponds and lakes? And so yeah. that's where I'm at now. Um, and of course, with Chicago having both the lake as in Lake Michigan and then the Chicago River, I kind of started focusing in on um, bringing my Great Lakes knowledge over to the Chicago River and start focusing on what's what's here, how has it changed over time, how can things um, that we do on land affect the organisms within the river. In the same way that we have now brought Lake Michigan water into the Chicago River. You brought me into the Chicago there River. <laughs> Just washed your washed you right in. Through, yeah, through the sure lock and dam and <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's it's uh, you probably couldn't be perhaps in a more interesting place if you were looking at this interface between big old ocean like area and river. But particularly this river, it's kind of just had every environmental degradation that you could possibly throw at it. We first of all, big one, reverse the river. So instead of north branch and south branch combining at the main stem to come out and dump out into the lake like no that's not going to work for us we drink from there so instead of cleaning this up let's just switch this whole thing and get the good clean water coming in and push all our crap down to st louis it made sense then you know depending on how much you like st louis now it might still make sense to you but uh chicago river system has just been it's really really impacted and so what, what are some of the big ways that the river has been changed over the years and what kind of challenges do those pose for the fish trying to live in the river system? Well, yeah, like you said, how hasn't it been changed? Pretty much yeah. anything we can think of across the globe has happened to the Chicago waterways. I kind of like using that term more than river because right. it doesn't operate anything like a a river which would have like small streams and headwater mountainous areas that connect and get bigger and bigger and flow down to the ocean the chicago waterways pull water from lake michigan they just drain the lake <laughs> kind of and pull that water through it flush across a continental divide so they're 
then meeting up with the Des Plaines River, the Illinois River, and out to the Mississippi into the Gulf, which is just kind of bizarre. So that's one way that it kind of affects fish too, is that normally they wouldn't be able to swim from the Mississippi River <laughs> up into Lake Michigan, and they can kind of do that yeah. now. And um, what that does is sort of affect the flows that fish would be used to you'd kind of think that there'd be seasonal flows to the river versus here. It's kind of consistent throughout the year. It doesn't, I mean, we get rain that washes into it and can inundate it, but it's not the same as like the uh, regime you would see out on the Great Plains or something like that, where um, it's affected more by those rainstorms. Chicago also tied the river to its sewer system. I mean, we're not the only city that did it. It was a giant push around the turn of the 1900s or so for a lot of cities to take uh, stormwater, put it underground, but then also just connect your houses to it and have that flow out into a river. And so that was one way of getting rid of stormwater and our wastewater is just put it into the river and let it dilute or go somewhere else. Like you said, we sent it down to St. Louis. They tried... Them, along with several other cities, tried to sue Chicago, but they were doing the same thing, so lost that <laughs> lawsuit. You can't sue us for what you literally do also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oops. When water treatment became a thing, we developed some wastewater treatment facilities here. Our Stickney water plant is one of the largest in the U.S., so they process some of the largest amounts of water or in the world, I mean. So the Stickney plant's one of the largest in the world. And that wastewater treatment is great because it can remove a lot of the organic waste coming from our houses or a lot of the pollutants from um, street level runoff. But when it rains, if Chicago gets like almost an inch of rain, it tends to inundate those systems. And with that, what I mean by that is like the amount of rain can actually flush those wastewater treatment plants clean of their ability to function. So instead of allowing that to happen, the water gets diverted directly into the river. And so raw sewage actually goes into the river still. Um, and these are called combined sewer overflow events. So like we just had a pretty heavy rainfall today. I don't think it is going to reach the amount of rain to cause a CSO event, but when those happen, water from that storm mixes with water from our houses and then ends up directly in the river. And so that causes another big problem with fish trying to live there is they now have all this street and sidewalk runoff that they're contending with along with whatever was just flushed down your toilet or down your kitchen sink is now ending up in the river. So that's another stressor for this area. Chicago being a large city too, a lot of those big buildings, people don't know that they pull in water from the river to help cool, help cool the building down. So they'll pull in water and cool the building and then release that water back into the river. Of course, there's like stipulations on how warm that water can be when it gets dumped back in and how much they can pull, but often permits let them skirt those issues. So that's another stressor that a lot of people don't know about that I think is maybe important to bring up <laughs> um, yeah and what else our waterways are used for shipping uh 
So Chicago's waterways have barges that go up and down them, which cause their own sorts of issues. The waves from them can really erode the sides of the waterway if we didn't put in these giant steel walls to hold them in place. Um, all sorts of spills can happen on a barge that ends up overflowing into the river that can cause issues too. Yeah, so and so obviously it's it's not some of these other problems that we've created are, you know, okay, you, you cut down all these trees, so plant new trees solves a bulk of that problem. With the river, it's kind of tied in deeply with everything else that is humanity. You know, there is no way, nobody's going to give up a high rise with air conditioning. You know, there's just never going to be a time where you don't have those, all these tall buildings pulling in all this water. We can't re-meander this river, right? There's all these areas where all these million dollar buildings are built up that we're not ever going to be able to do away with and so it kind of it makes you wonder how far gone are we and um what do we have to do to kind of get in even just to a better place so in terms of like uh if we were to have an ideal river here what what are some attributes some attributes of a really healthy river what what if chicago's river system were as good as it can get what might that look what did it look like before we got here well i mean that's a big jump right before we got here <laughs> it was like a stream that was very slow flowing i think it was spring fed if i remember correctly which means water coming out of the ground which is usually extremely clean water um, coming out of the ground, flowing across the surface and out into Lake Michigan. It was surrounded by trees and shrubs. Those trees give it some shade, so the water was probably pretty cool or cold. And trees and shrubs also tend to fall apart. So <laughs> parts of those trees, say like their leaves or their twigs, or parts of the bark would fall into the river. And those are great food sources for invertebrates. They can shred it, they can pull it into pieces, they can try to decompose it, um, and that creates all sorts of new bugs for fish to feed off of and kind of restarts that food web in the stream. Now, <laughs> we have taken out all those trees. Um, instead of having a river that kind of snakes its way through the forest, it's now just been straightened and we've put in either steel walls to make the walls of it straight and we build sidewalks all the way up to it, or we have extremely steep banks that maybe have a tree on it. Um, nowhere near the amount of canopy cover uh, a stream or river in this area would normally have. And so we're kind of missing those things and they're hard to change, if not impossible to change. So people are trying to get creative in how can we bring some of those previous processes back to these urban rivers um, and what creative, I guess, enhancements can we make to the river to allow that. So you're working pretty heavily with urban rivers, uh, which you guys are trying to put in some floating wetlands and floating islands that are a means of not only making the river look pretty, but they provide some of the processes that a normal stream bank would have provided, right? They kind of shade a section of the river. They have plants with roots that are pulling nutrients out of the water. Um, those roots provide surfaces for algae and bacteria to grow that um, invertebrates can feed off of. And then fish can feed off of those invertebrates. Fish can hide underneath the islands. They can 
seek refuge from flows if the water's flowing pretty quickly from going behind the islands. Um, those plants provide flowers for pollinators and you might have more terrestrial insects in the waterway due to having these islands there. And so that's one creative way of trying to help restore some of the processes a normal river would have. Um, other places are looking at ways of how do we add back in woody debris, which like I was saying with the leaves and twigs and bark falling into streams, um, that woody debris decomposes and feeds all sorts of things. Um, so there's areas that are trying to see how can we best add those back in um, and provide that benefit to a river. So they're trying to do things like how do we tie uh, wooden planks to the steel walls? That way they're still out of the way of the barges, but they provide that woody breakdown. Or how do we maybe drag downed trees into areas where barges aren't going so that um, those processes can still occur. I think a big issue that's going to be extremely difficult to combat is that a normal river would meander, which means like snake back and forth. And during that process, it would grab sediment and push it downstream or pull it downstream. And that sediment would have all sorts of nutrients in it that could feed bacteria and phytoplankton and stuff. And that's just not feasible in a city. You can't have a river that's moving towards a high rise and eventually knocks a high rise over. We have to like stabilize it. So coming up with some way of allowing that to occur again will be an interesting path in the future. It's trying to restore that geomorphology of a river. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about the, uh, especially, it isn't even just such the raw physics of it. Sometimes it's like the the way in which these things generally work in concert were what were important to ecology. Like you were mentioning the leaves falling and the relation to invertebrates. There's a very interesting thing that kind of happens, this nutrient flux with a lot of these streams where... When you're in the summer, you have light penetrating into the water, and so or it's kind of, it's complicated because there's it depends on the stream. So obviously the canopy can shade things out entirely, but in the summer more sunlight equals more productivity. So there's more algae, there's more things, plant material for different things to feed on, and that means. There's also kind of in the summer, there's more bugs falling in. There's bugs crawling on on leaves and things that are falling in. In the winter, all these things change where the, the bugs are not there anymore. The sunlight is low. But what actually ends up subsidizing the energy requirement for a lot of the critters, especially the benthic invertebrates, is the leaves falling and going down and sitting on the bottom. And then there's a store, there's a cache of food for a lot of things to eat during the year. And so fish will actually fish invertebrate macroinvertebrates will be switching their diets from being maybe more uh, algae eaters or the things that eat algae and switching back over to the plant-based stuff it's, it's it's kind of fascinating to see the way that things cycle through seasonally as well which is also something that we disturb you know it's it's not something that's not allowed to happen anymore we we have a, such a insistence on controlling that system because it was very valuable to us at one point to be highly controlled and now that we control so much of it i think we're starting to realize how much damage that's doing in so many different ways yeah it's it's tough to imagine you really can't re-meander it but 
that is kind of one of our questions is how how can we create that same sort of function working within the confines that we now have and i think log jams deadfalls are kind of one of the most interesting aspects because that is probably something that we can still end up doing to a degree and even if you don't have an actual meandering of the river you might be able to kind of block current and kind of make current wiggle along and maybe that does something so what from our perspective especially we're kind of always hesitant to say that we're making things more natural or we're making things better because we're really not we're not re-naturalizing it what we're trying to do is make it better mimic that kind of patchwork of habitat that would normally exist and so i mean that that's what it's it's especially with when it comes to fish I think fish are the most responsive to those habitat additions that you're putting in. Sometimes, you know, birds might not care if you do something. Uh, Macroinvertebrates might not really care if there's like an extra type of plant here. But fish are almost always going to go swim and check out what you just threw in the river. You know, that's just kind of inherent to their nature. So I think it's really. I have a ridiculous video of. I just shoved a GoPro down in the diversity lagoons and a bunch of green sunfish just swim up out of nowhere. They look like children (laughs) of the corn, just like coming out. What did you just put in here? Um, But yeah, they're definitely curious about things. They really love to, um, they like structure. So whether that structure is a dock or the artificial islands that you're putting in or some of those fish lunkers or the fish hotel that friends put in downtown, like fish really like to hang out around structures um at least fish in rivers uh you i'm thinking contrasting that with something like salmon in the great lakes that just like to cruise around Um, yeah but yeah in a river they really like to hang out around structures they um, can pick bugs off of it hide underneath it get refuge from flows or shade or something but restoring these areas is kind of an odd word to use right which is sort of what you were talking about like we're not really going to get it back to a natural setting which is what the word restore kind of means or the connotation of restore so i try to talk about them as like enhancements or improvements um some people like talking about reconciliation ecology so we can still use the waterway for our purposes but how do we also be best stewards for the organisms who can't control the area. (laughs) So fish and invertebrates and birds. And um, so, yeah, like we're never going to be able to really have a fully meandering urban stream. We're never going to be able to fully untie the stream from like the sewer system, at least conceivably at this point in time. Um, And you're not going to, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to, fight against barge traffic when you want to put in log jams or um, current diversion techniques and things. So how do we instead get creative and what enhancements can we add? Austin, you mentioned uh, growing up on a pond and that's kind of what got you interested in fish and everything. I grew up, uh, my neighborhood had a lake and the biggest thing that I remember the community doing to create fish habitat was taking everyone's Christmas trees at the end of the year and putting them in the lake to create habitat for all the crappie that live there. Yeah. Um, Can you kind of touch on what kind of fish habitats make rivers special that you wouldn't typically find in a pond or lake? I don't think we're going to find a bunch of Christmas trees in the Chicago River, but I could be wrong. 
I mean, I saw a divvy bike in the river the other day. That's not really a, a Christmas tree. Um, yeah, and often if large logs or trees end up in the Chicago River, they'll get pulled out because they can make it difficult for boat traffic, which it's mandated that we make it as easy as possible for barges to move up and down the river. Some stuff I think about when I think of like a natural river and habitats that uh, would be beneficial for fish is the idea that there's usually some sort of what's called a pool riffle run sequence. So a pool would be some sort of slow, almost pond-like area of a river. A riffle would then be a relatively shallow section that creates that bubbling sound that you typically think of with like a bubbling brook or something like that, where the water's really turbulent, it's pretty quick. Um, the substrate's usually pretty gravelly or rocky. And then there's something in between the two called a run, where it's usually relatively deep water that's moving pretty quickly in an area. And those provide at least three distinct habitats that people like to talk about in streams. So, in riffle habitat, you'll tend to find um, fish that are really adept at sticking to the bottom of the river during that fast flow. They'll tend to pick off things that are flying by pretty quickly versus in, say, a pool. So the exact opposite of a riffle, you'll find fish that are really good at hiding up under, say, a root wad or hiding in some of the um, aquatic plants that are growing in that area. Having those sort of sequences be common in a river is usually thought of as um, a good target. Uh, so a lot of restoration efforts in small streams will aim to put in a riffle, they'll aim to put in a run, and they'll aim to put in a pool. That way they can kind of get three habitats and attract whatever specialists to those three habitats are there. Some other aspects of natural rivers that are pretty um, I guess unique would be that a lot of times they'll braid, so the river will separate out and create several small little streams all flowing in the same direction, but they'll kind of like meander themselves in between each other and braid back and forth, and that creates all sorts of um, different segments of those pool riffle run sequences, but also different exposures to trees and shrubs, and those can fall in or they'll have different hydraulic action that's kind of scraping at sediment, so pulling off some of the, I guess, dirt and soil and carrying it along with it. So those braided sections can kind of create a lot of diversity in just a really small section. And then a lot of large rivers will tend to have some sort of backwater area. And so by backwater, I mean like not flowing but still connected to the river and these are thought of as huge nursery habitats so fish will spawn but then the babies will be in those backwater areas where um, there's usually a lot of productivity because it's usually pretty shallow it's not flowing quite as much so the babies have an easier time navigating around and eating say zooplankton or something um, and so those back channel and backwater areas are usually pretty important habitats for riverine systems. I think the very various similar aspects come to when you're talking about things that I've kind of been more interested in, algae and microbes, a lot of the sa almost exact same situation where 
if you had all other chemical elements present, if it was a uniform type of water, you still would have dramatically different algal microbial species coming through just based on the physical characteristics of that area. It doesn't even have to be just the pollution in the water, the amount of nutrients in the water. Sometimes it is just, here's a quick stretch. And so the algae that are gonna be here are gonna be the long filamentous algae that can attach to a rock that can, that are dealt, that are used to or accustomed to dealing with quick water. And then you also have areas where it's very slow, it's very sluggish, and that allows those big colonial pods of algae to kind of form on the top. So it's not even just for raw fish, you know, it's like, it's all of the ecosystem. The, the whole ecosystem has is used to having these patches. And that's kind of probably the, one of the biggest things that we've robbed of this area, because it isn't as if there aren't those opportunities along this river. You know, the um, <laughs> talk about braiding, even though the canal is itself an artificial thing, that kind of an example right there where that river just, it splits off and then it meets back to its same spot. So we could have one type of habitat in the main branch that's going along with the faster water and maybe more of a pool in the turning basin and then the run along the river and then the canal can be you know a lot of different things so and then looking at our old barge slips or the uh, bubbly creek down south those are exactly like or not exactly but they're quite like backwaters right so it's like we have the space for this kind of stuff it's just sort of that we need to be like reinventing the ability to, for it to be used as habitat. Yeah, it, a lot of it too is just kind of reframing our thinking, right? Like, so we can talk about how there's all these corollaries to these natural systems, but people tend to just instantly write them off and be like, all of this is garbage. But <laughs> it's like, in fact, we have a awesome fish diversity in the Chicago River and part of it is due to having say like those slips there and changing the way that we treat stormwater and allowing goose island to exist or like um i don't know that it's i kind of advocate for us thinking about these as like new kinds of ecosystems rather than trying to correlate them to a natural river just like what is how can we think about this in the best way possible and how can we continue to take steps in a positive improving direction um, and yeah I think looking at those backwater areas is going to be a really cool um, part of it because those barge slips we can drag logs back in there as long as the barge can still move in and out or um, yeah. they're usually pretty good refuges from times when oxygen within the river gets really low because there's aquatic life or there's plant life in those slips and so they can kind of keep the oxygen high and so they act as refuges during those stressful times too so it'll be cool to see what we can um, study with some of these new systems and kind of shifting thinking yeah and it's really just interesting i you know so many of these river river systems are they have many things that glue them together, many things that are the same for all fishes and all rivers, but there's also just these really interesting different characteristics of different rivers. You talk about, you grew up in Indiana. I, we actually were both born in Fort Wayne. They have a really kind of interesting river system there where they 
we're not nearly as um, using this in such an industrial sense. Their river system, they sit at the confluence between three rivers and they have three dams on one on each of the rivers. And so essentially what happens is these dams create a middle area where the city is that is like a pool. So they block it up, they fill it up a bit, it's a pool. And then as the winter goes on and expecting spring, they'll bring the level of the river down so that the spring melt will fill it back up to the line that they want it to be. There's kind of a consequence of this is even if the it's not nearly as channelized as the Chicago River, there's tons of trees along the sides, they still have this enormous erosion issue because they're killing all the plants when they draw that water down and then fill it back up very quickly. They're kill it. That's just enough time for them to kill all the plants that are holding on to a lot of that sediment. So it's like that there is no really uniform solution to all of these rivers. But, it, you know, if you could kind of do you have an idea of rivers that maybe got spared a lot of industrialization and are as a consequence uh, in pretty decent shape? And how do they compare to some of the rivers that we see around us, especially the Lake Chicago? Yeah. I mean, my gut inclination is no, <laughs> uh, because <laughs> you say get spared from urbanization and that just really wasn't the thinking into how cities grew and were planned um and so no i don't think there's many or any urban rivers i can think of off the top of my head at least in cities that have a decent population i think you could think of like some small towns in the mountains or in alaska where they didn't necessarily need the river for as many uses as a lot of the larger cities do and so um I think a lot of rivers flowing through big cities experience really similar problems in that they've been channelized. Their channels may have steel walls instead of any sort of bank. None of them seem to have riparian areas because we like sidewalks near them and buildings right up next to them. Um, that means that a lot of them also get runoff directly from sidewalks and roads so they have to deal with whatever runs off there which up here in the midwest also means there's the addition of salt every spring when the snow melts and runs yeah. off into the river there's the heat factor so just simply all that concrete and those buildings warm up the rivers in that area there's all these things that we can now kind of work towards maybe mitigating the best that we can and there's some rivers in urban areas that are doing some pretty awesome um, jobs. The Seine River in Paris, they're letting people swim like in downtown. So it, much like our canals, people can swim downtown there. They currently have like these pools in a canal. So I think it's treated water and they can swim in that, but they're hoping that by the Olympics that they're hosting in 2024, that they can swim like in downtown Paris. Wow. Um, which would be awesome. The Wilmette River in Portland and the Charles River in Boston allow people to swim in them. And so you can swim downtown in those cities. And then um, I know New York and London and Montreal are also pushing heavily for swimming in the very near future. And I mean, we're also Chicago 
is also pushing for swimming in the very near future. And so, no, I don't think there's lots that have been spared, but there's definitely ones that are rebounding and are mm-hmm. heading to really cool and great places. Um, and it'll yeah. be fun to continue to watch that. Oh, yeah. There, there, I And I had known a couple of places that... Um, just like coincidentally you know they got most most cities are founded on rivers right like it's just one of those things where i think in the u.s there's probably only a handful of cities and i've looked this up a couple of times now but i think it's like over five hundred thousand people like only phoenix mesa san francisco and baltimore are the only ones that don't really have uh river running through it and of course san francisco and baltimore they're like they're on the sea they're in a big i was harbor, like those so. are on estuaries so <laughs> yeah I don't, so it's I, like not get really that, that off different. your list <laughs> yeah so i you know it's something that is and especially in the european cities you just see that the they've been so important for so very long and but it's funny the ones the places like maybe a denver or something they have the south platte river there which was never really navigable you know they might have wanted it there for perhaps drinking water or sanitation but those (laughs) uses went by the wayside a long long time ago and so um indianapolis is a funny one too they founded indianapolis there because it's on the white river and they thought oh this will be great this connects to all the other stuff that heads out to the lakes and then they get there and they're like oh this is way too shallow like there's absolutely no way to use this so they had a canal that extended the life a little bit but you know, some of these, it just almost seems like we couldn't use it. And so we ignored it in the first place, which is kind of a funny, you know, disrespecting the rivers. But they ended up being a little more protected in the end. So who knows? Well, I mean, they're still you or they were still used as like essentially open sewer systems. Yeah. So they were still kind of affected by that. And both of them had been channelized to a degree. Right. So. So when I lived out in Colorado, I tried to keep up with it, and I've lost track now. But for a while, they were building a whitewater rafting slash restoration in Denver, which is going to be really cool because um, one of the grad students I was working with was able to find that, like, stone cats really liked the riffles that they were creating with the artificial habitat so like the white water habitat that they were kind of building so that people could use it it's also fish habitat they were finding that it actually is beneficial and was working so those are the kind of creative things that i think are really exciting like yeah okay we maybe didn't treat this river great not as terribly as other places but how can we put in stuff that's helpful both the people and the fish there isn't a river that doesn't have room for improvement is what you're saying we can always improve (laughs) everywhere right (laughs) so we've kind of talked about historically rivers have been polluted or have faced various threats we're kind of seeing in our day and age with the expansion of international trade these new emerging threats of invasive species and so many people have heard of the fish, invasive fish species like goldfish or the notorious Asian carp, uh, do these species cause interruptions in an ecosystem or are they more a symptom of the ecosystem itself falling apart? I mean, part of it is the term invasive sort of means that the fish is causing a problem. Like that term is usually saved for when a population gets large enough that it's starting to 
create issues with how we understand that ecosystem functioning. And on top of that, the species has spread to new ecosystems. Um, there's all sorts of fish, or not even just fish, there's all sorts of species that are dumped places. Um, and these alien species usually just don't survive. You drop a goldfish in the ocean, not gonna last too long. Drop some ocean fish in the Great Lakes won't last too long. Same with, I don't know, plants and insects. But we start to notice species when they become a large enough population size that they start creating an issue. We'll usually call them a nuisance species at that point. And then when they start spreading to new ecosystems, we'll call them invasive. So I usually think of them as, yes, causing some sort of issue um, to the ecosystem, something like they'll outcompete some fish that we wanted there earlier, or some species we wanted there earlier, or maybe they just eat everything, or maybe they change the way the habitat looks. So if we think of like zebra mussels and quagga mussels, they got in and they completely changed how the bottom of the Great Lakes look. No longer is it the sandy or rocky or clay bottom, it's just shells everywhere. I don't like giving invasive species a terrible name because most of the time it's our own fault and it's not the species fault that they're there. Um, Largemouth bass are one of the most common invasive species worldwide and it's because people like fishing for them and they'll just plop them in wherever they'd like to go fishing. And so largemouth bass are everywhere. They become um, established in ecosystems that were functioning really well. So that's where I'm like, well, they're not really a, a symptom of a malfunctioning ecosystem. No, because it's like it's very similar in the the plant world is almost exact. The one of the I think um, things I try to impress upon people is that there are native and non-native invasive species. There native and non-native. There's some non-native species of plant that, like you said, a, a tropical something or another is not going to survive in Chicago, no matter how many you throw out there. It's just, it's right. never, ever going to happen. It's just the physiology just does not match up with the environment. It's never going to happen. There are native plants like cattails per se, for instance, that can dominate an area that can come in and completely destroy wetland area and it's a native cattail and you know maybe there are more controls on things like that but normally you just have these big these cycles that set things up to be to protect that diversity so that even if you had an area where cattails come and invade there are still plenty of other areas around where cattails have not invaded and just like you were talking about a lot of times they'll come in in areas where there aren't established natives who are taking up all the space and so sometimes you might see post-fire, you know, they're kind of tricky areas that might have, they might be wet enough certain times and not wet enough other times. So maybe they burn in one year, but don't burn another. There's all, it's like a, it's like a mosaic, right? It's like a, it's a patchwork of things that should happen that protects this diversity that we're just not interested in keeping around. We don't want fires to happen. We don't want the river to be moving. We want it to stay in one place. And that's it. And I, yeah, it, it's more the care, those characteristics like, hey, aggressive species are going to take advantage of you trying to control them so much. And if you create areas where there's just nothing or there's close to nothing, something's going to fill in there for certain. It's like a, it's a no, no doubt proposition. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, 
so when we're looking at measuring fish populations, when you go out and do research, what what are kind of the big things that you're looking for? What are sort of the data gathering methods that are kind of tried and true that allow you to assess how well fish are doing? So to look at, yeah, how well fish are doing, I like that you phrase it that way some people ask like how do you tell if a fish is healthy and i'm like well, i don't i can't read a fish's mind so i can't tell you it's mental health but um we'll usually use terms like condition or i don't know how fat it is we'll talk about lipid content and um is it a large enough size that a fisherman would remember it is literally a metric that people use uh, so usually we'll look at fish size and fish condition and condition being how much does it weigh for how large it is and the reason we're interested in fish sizes and like length is that fish get longer as they get older and so if we're able to find really long fish as well as tiny little babies then we kind of know that that population has geriatric adults it probably has some adults that are spawning if there's babies around and then it also has the babies and all of those that whole lifespan surviving there speaks to what habitat is available. So they're finding food, they're finding an area to hide, they're able to get away from predators somehow, um, and they're able to spawn on something, and they're finding whatever water quality and habitat structures they need to spawn. So size structure is usually one of the things we'll look for when studying fish. Um, another thing is just species composition. So if I um, sample a section of river, what types of fish do I find? Are they all predators? Are they all planktivores? Are they all invasive fish? Do they all only eat detritus? So like if we pull up a net of common carp that just kind of eat mud off the ground, that doesn't speak very highly to that section of river versus if we find a section of river that has like a predator like a bass. It has some um, prey fish like blunt-nosed minnows or gizzard shad and it has some planktivores again like gizzard shad or maybe bluegill and it has some catfish in it so this like diversity of species and the way that those species interact with each other can speak pretty highly to how that system's functioning there so species composition would be another one we would look for and then yeah we'll look at habitat and water quality in an area as far as catching fish there's all sorts of methods people will use. So we have uh, the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District and the Illinois Department of Natural Resources tend to use electroshocking boats um, to sample Chicago's rivers and waterways. Uh, these boats use electricity to kind of stun fish um, and the fish will actually swim towards the boat. People on the boat can net them up and then they'll get the length data they need and of course species ID if they have time, they'll weigh the fish. Sometimes they'll catch like 300 gizzard shad. It's like, I don't have time for this and like put them back because <laughs> you have to work relatively quickly to get them back in the water. They're only stunned for a few seconds and you don't want to stress them out any more than um, you already are. Um, so electroshocking is one of the prime ways people will sample fish in this area. Um, there's other things we could use. There's nets that are called gill nets where fish will swim into them and then they get kind of caught. Um, their gill openings, the 
operculum will get stuck in the net and then we can come pull them out and essentially rescue them and return them back. Um, a lot of agencies don't use those in rivers, they'll use them in uh, lakes because a river will rip it to shreds with all the debris coming down. Um, or they can use some sort of traps. So there's all sorts of configuration of traps that we can use to catch fish. And all of them have, all these different gears have pros and cons and um, you just have to be aware of those when you're um, using them to sample. Um, and that's why it's kind of cool that a lot of Illinois, so not only in Chicago, but downstream of Chicago has used these standardized electrofishing methods for decades. And we can now compare how has fish community changed across all of these decades because they've used the exact same method since like yeah. even the 60s to sample fish, which is really cool. Oh, yeah. Well, until until now, when you were and you need to tell people about the night raves that you conduct when you go out and do this research now, because I think that is one of the funnier sampling methods is basically inviting young fish to hang out at a, a nightclub in the room yeah um so phil's referencing my work trying to look at larval fish and so larval fish are fish that are just a few days old up to maybe three weeks old or so um really tiny guys at that age they're attracted to light for reasons we're not entirely sure of there's um i mean much like moths and bugs are attracted to lights these fish tend to swim directly towards them um, it may be some sort of relic um, left over if those bugs travel by moonlight maybe these fish are using it but we're not really sure anyways we can use this light to attract them into traps and so at night i'll go out to the uh, wild mile and try to see what fish are spawning in that area by catching these larval fish the light source I started off using were glow sticks so we'll put these traps in the water we'll crack a glow stick and put it in the water inside that trap wait like an hour or so and then uh, pull it up and see what we caught since we're using glow sticks they're most effective after civil twilight which is about an hour and a half after actual sunset so I'll wait about an hour and a half after sunset. I'll go out there, I'll set these traps. I'll come back about an hour later and pull them up and see what I caught. Um, we're working on doing some genetic analyses on these larval fish um, because some of them are just so tiny that all the meristics, which are counts, so like you can count parts of the body or measure parts of the body, all those meristics are really difficult and overlap at this tiny size. So we'll use genetics to try to get IDs. So far, last year we caught 10 species that were spawning in the wild mile area, um, which is cool because some of the species we found are species that don't show up as frequently in MWRD sampling. So they'll go out and when they sample with the electroshocking boat, they'll get adults. There's far, far fewer adults than there are larval fish. Um, and so sampling with larval fish can get us some other information because usually there's like a billion larval fish for every adult that ends up surviving. And so, yeah, I'll go out there and have a little glow stick rave and see what fish I catch. Something I want to do this year, since glow sticks are not very sustainable, is move to LEDs. 
<laughs> so that I'm not creating yeah. a further trash problem. Um, if I can use LEDs, they're brighter and they're more consistent in the light produced. Um, I might be able to um, use those and maybe stop creating so many dead glow stick waste products. And so that's something I'm trying to do this year is see if I can put out some traps that have glow sticks and at the same time have traps that are LEDs and make sure that I don't catch different fish species or um, catch different amounts. If they're about the same, that would be really cool. If they're different, does it, I just need to know that they are different and I can account for that going yeah. forward. One thing I like to bring up is that there's, um, within the larval fish field of work and using these LED or these glow stick light traps is that there's um, a master's project that some student actually compared the different colors of glow sticks and so they cracked like white ones and red ones and blue ones and green and yellow ones and tried to see if they catch different ones or different amounts and they end up catching the most with the green glow sticks which are the standard cheapest ones so that makes it easier. One of the one of the cool things that um I think you could call a success story if there ever was one is very recently the um, Army Corps working together with a couple other groups in Chicago has taken out this dam. It's one of the last remaining dams in the Chicago waterway system that was basically physically separating the north branch that kind of trails through a bunch of forest preserves and meets up with the North Shore Canal. They used to have a dam that blocked off the north branch there. They removed it and ever since then we had the MWRD come and tag a couple fish bass from our canal Um, and just recently we had some really cool news about that so I don't know if you want to kind of go through that story really quickly and why that's important. Yeah so they removed I think they called it Chicago's last waterfall, which I mean, we didn't have waterfalls to begin with, but so they (laughs) removed that dam, I think in 2018. Um, I started in 2019 and asked, or started talking with MWRD about tagging fish and what they had done. And they had sort of shied away from tagging fish because they weren't getting recaptures which is the whole point of tagging fish. Like you want to tag them and then you hope that an angler finds it and calls you and is like, hey, I found this fish somewhere or you yourself catch it. And so we were like, well, let's start tagging them around the wild mile to see if fish hang out around these islands. Do they stick around or do they go somewhere else? So they tagged 10 bass last year. And one of the ones that they tagged in October a fisherman found all the way up near Skokie Lagoons, which is about 30 river miles away. They caught that bass, um, I want to say in May. I can't remember the date, May or April. So over the course of like six to seven months, that fish moved some 30 miles upstream, which is a ridiculous feat because that's against the flow. Like he didn't just like drift downstream. He actively swam upstream. Um, which is really cool. I thought maybe bass would stick around, but apparently they just disperse and go everywhere here. And so not only is it cool that he swam upstream 30 some miles, he did it over winter. So maybe he's seeking out some winter refuge somewhere. Um, and then he did it through an area that had a dam. So he we removed that dam and now he's fish are already migrating super far up it. Um, which is great. It speaks to 
what happens when we do remove these barriers to migration and connectivity. Um, we take these dams that aren't really functioning anymore, knock them down, put something else in there. They put in a, a riffle sequence there um, that now kayakers can also kind of like go traverse. And then that bass went up it like, what, a year and a half later, two years later, already swimming up it. So that's really cool, um, really interesting, and sparks a lot of ideas for future research. I'm still really interested in trying to figure out like, what do bass do in this area in the winter? Do they hang out in the slips? Do they now migrate all the way up to the Skokie Lagoons? Do they go out south to the Illinois where there's more water, so it might be warmer down there? Like, And that can give us a lot of information on how we might manage that fishery as we move towards having a nice fishable bass population here. Austin, so you work at the Shed Aquarium. Shed Aquarium contains fishes from across the world. Are there certain stresses that are threatening fish worldwide? I mean, apart from the obvious overfishing. Uh, yeah, that's the f first one I would think of. So you think worldwide fish, fish stressor, overfishing. So like the population's booming, people are hungry, people like fish. Um, and in a lot of places that are developing, fish is a really cheap protein source because they can just go to the ocean or the river and scoop them out. And so overfishing continues to be an issue. Um, just recently, I believe the production of aquaculture has surpassed capture fisheries, which is um, cool. Uh, hopefully that trajectory continues and that not only can aquaculture continue to outpace capture fisheries, but it can um, start replacing them on a cost basis. So the problem with aquaculture often is that it costs more for the person to put on their plate. And so hopefully it can become more affordable and we can reduce some of the stress on those overfished um, populations. Uh, another stressor I think of worldwide is introductions. So like I said earlier, largemouth bass are one of the largest inter introduced species throughout the world. Common carp are everywhere too. Those have been introduced everywhere. Um, and so these introduced species can disrupt either the way the whole ecosystem functions or the food web functions, um, and they continue to pop up due to various reasons, usually traced back to a human action at some point. Um, and so invasive species continue to be an, an issue, especially as we're traveling more and more. Um, other ones, so we just talked about dam removal and removing barriers to passage. Uh, those remain a huge issue throughout the world. Dams were used to kind of slow down the flows of rivers so they can make a reservoir. And that reservoir could be used for drinking water, it can be used for boating, it can be used for fishing. The dam itself could be used to create hydropower so we can actually turn on our lights. And then downstream of that dam, we can actually control how much water is flowing there so we can use that area for agriculture or for building cities. People are advocating for the removal of some of those barriers because those um, dams have kind of disrupted the way a river would normally flow and the way energy is usually processed throughout the whole river system. And then we have some really creative ways to kind of help fish get under, through, or up and over dams, but they're not as efficient as if it was just a river. So despite having fish passageways and 
um, elevators and fish all ladders. The Seussian um, kind of all the Dr. Seuss gadgets that they have. I know. If you look at some of the ladders, they're really cool. The design is really interesting. Um, and they're coming up with more and more unique ways to make fish ladders more efficient. And what is, I guess, interesting or wild about it is that each new iteration of a fish ladder just looks more and more like a stream. So it's like, just just build a stream next to the dam and the fish will use that stream instead of your concrete fish yeah. ladder. Um, but yeah, I think dams would be another big one. And then of course, whenever you ask about stressors, people just kind of want to be like climate change and like clap and wash their hands and like move on. But it's probably helpful to point out some climate change issues. Um, one thing on this rainy day in Chicago that I think of with climate change is that Chicago's just getting, instead of like nice spring showers, we just get torrential downpours mm-hmm. now. And so instead of rain coming scattered throughout multiple days of the week or throughout a whole month or two months or whatever, it just comes in like one day and just downpours. And so that puts a huge stressor on uh, the river system due to stressing how we deal with stormwater in our cities and how we've built our cities. So our cities are full of impervious surfaces like the roads and the sidewalks in a building. So rain hits that, has nowhere to go except in our drains. Once it hits those drains, it can flush out our water treatment system. So instead of allowing that to happen, we dump it into the river. What has it just washed in to the river from like our sidewalks and what's been dumped on the road that it washes in? And so that's one aspect of climate change that can be a big stressor and it's happening throughout kind of the globe is cities are now getting rain in much shorter periods of time. The opposite of that is they're just not getting any rain at all. And so places like Australia had several years of drought and then they had a year of like complete monsoons. So instead of having that rain spread out over years, it just came in one year and dumped down. So there's some interesting things happening with the flashiness of streams um, and waterways. Another one with climate change, of course, is temperature. Fish operate at whatever temperature they're within. So their bodies are just whatever temperature that waterway is. And they often can't migrate very well. So a fish within a lake can't really leave that lake unless it's like one of the weird snakeheads or catfish that can army crawl to a new pond. They, <laughs> so as that pond or lake warms up, that fish just gets more and more stressed out um, year after year. And so that can be an issue. And then I guess I also think of the opposite. We're getting harsher and harsher winters. And to deal with our harsh winters, we're using more and more salt. That salt ends up washing into the river during those heavy rain events or just during snow melts and freshwater salinization is a new buzzword that people are starting to research and look into. Um, We're not seeing huge changes to large organisms like fish yet, but we're seeing some pretty big shifts in species of algae that grow and the phytoplankton that can feed on those types of algae. And so that's another big one to kind of watch for is like this freshwater salinization issue. 
I think those are some of the big ones I think of as stressors across the globe. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's and it's interesting too. Is there's just this this really hard point that rivers come up against where we just we do not want to give up. So the the dams, I think, is a perfect point where we're changing these rivers for about the space of like a hundred years at a time. Like we we built these dams, especially in the Northwest. We built a dam, and now they're looking at taking it out because it's expensive to maintain. It's an old dam. It's going to burst. There was just a dam the other week in Michigan, or uh, a couple months ago in Michigan, when we had all these downpours. That was an old earthen dam that they built for a different purpose a while ago, and now it's actually a hazard. But then you have all these new massive dams. Like, I know that there's one that they're building on the Nile. Um, This is a enormous dam that's going to generate a lot of electricity for a lot of different people but also the nile is obviously historically very important river also has a lot of countries that are relying on it in a myriad of different ways the southeast asia where you were talking about um fish spawning earlier the rivers in southeast asia where there's an incredible diversity of fish that really 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 rely on these rivers to be supplying a lot of different things for them these are now being dammed up because hydroelectricity is both a clean source of energy but it's also extremely stable and it's something that you can provide to people in rural areas and so it's it's just it's tough to see sometimes how you can even begin to approach these problems because how do you tell people that you can't have i have electricity i'm in air conditioning but you can't have it because there's these fish spawning here and it's like we 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 have to come up with more creative ways to deal with the problem because there's just a brutal reality where we can't we can't justify denying people something that we took advantage of just a hundred years ago So yeah, we like to end all of our podcasts with a brief glimmer of perhaps hope or actionable items that people can take care of. So in Chicago, in the broader region, or just if for anyone who lives and cares for a pond or river or lake, whoever cares for the fish, what what can people do? Do you have some favorite organizations that you might say, uh, look into these guys? Do you have some actions that people can take to help better protect fish? The first thing I usually like to say is go out and enjoy and use the resource. So whether it's a river or a pond or a lake or a stream or just a forest or something, the more people that are out and using it, the more we can fight for it. And even if you've never been there, going on something that can kind of introduce you to these ecosystems can really kind of turn around the way that you start thinking about it. So like, say you've never really gone on the Chicago River and you're afraid to do it, maybe seek out something like Shed's Kayak for Conservation program where you can be taught how to get in a kayak and kayak around while also learning about the river and its history you'll probably see that it's not as gross as you think it is. And that can kind of change the way that you talk to others about the river. Or maybe just go for a short walk in one of the forest preserves and see what it's like to be in one of these forested areas in a large city. And that might change the way that you talk to people about things. And then it kind of snowballs. So it's almost like a first little step. And then you can start taking more and more steps because the more you use that resource, the more you care about it. And so 
probably not your first time using it, but maybe your fifth time using it, you'll start picking up trash. Maybe the 20th time you use it, you'll start telling people off when you see them throw trash on the ground. And like after 50 times using it, you might start talking to your aldermen about how we can better be stewards of the resource. I guess on top of that, look to your local friends of the blah, 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 wherever you are, there's a friend of the forest preserve or a friend of this waterway, friends of this lake. And they're usually great stewards that you can um, donate money to if you're not able or interested in going out and cleaning trash or something. Um, that can be another way to really be active. Yeah, and, and so are, you know, are fish going to be all right? Are you hopeful for the future of fish? <laughs> fish in general? Yeah. I mean, when I was talking about the sign and the Thames and the East River where people are starting to swim in it, that's just another um, another example of people interacting with the resource and starting to think more highly of it. And I think that as we're becoming more aware that we can use these resources in that way, we also become better stewards for fish um, and make sure that they're healthy. So, so yeah, definitely hopeful for fish and excited to see what's to come. Austin Happel, PhD, freshwater researcher from Shedd Aquarium. We appreciate you so much taking the time to talk to us today. This has been wonderful. Uh, thank you for telling us all about fish and even more than I thought possible. So really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to catch up with you, Phil. All right, Austin, thanks a lot. Have a good one. If you weren't hooked on our podcast yet, I hope you are now. Make sure to subscribe, rate, review, even listen again. A huge thank you to Austin for joining us today. I found all that information on fishes fascinating. And you heard him, folks. Get out there and enjoy all those resources available to you, whether that be a river, a forest, or lake. Get out there, learn about your ecosystems, have some fun. We'll see you next time.